You're listening to the Namely Marley podcast, episode number 31. Hey everyone, and welcome to the Namely Marley podcast. I'm your host, Marley. Um, the goal of this podcast is to focus on adding a little creative, healthy, and passion-filled living to your day every day. Today I'm talking with Jasmine Singer. She's a writer, activist, and author of the memoir, Always Too Much and Never Enough. Jasmine's book tells her story of overcoming emotional attachments to food and how she found herself through juicing, veganism, and love. I really resonated with Jasmine's book, I guess because I also experienced a lot of those same emotional attachments to food in my life, even beginning all the way back in childhood. All my siblings were uh, thin and I was always the chubby one. And so I think getting those kinds of labels early on in life can lead to a lot of baggage. Um, I think I'm not the only one that's been through this. Obviously, a lot of people have resonated with Jasmine and her book probably for that very same reason. And I love how Jasmine shares her story and uh, she talks about how veganism helped her make some changes in her life, but that it wasn't really until she discovered juicing that she started losing the weight and feeling healthy. So we talk about that and we talk about the balance between enjoying sinfully delicious vegan food, but also making sure we're nourishing ourselves. And so Jasmine talks about that and that how for her juicing several days a month and also following Dr. Fuhrman's diet, which is eat to live, um, is really helpful. I have Dr. Fuhrman's book too, and I have uh, gotten a lot of great advice from it. And I do think it's probably a very good plan to follow on a day-to-day basis. However, I, as you can tell by <laughs> being on my site, I do like sinfully delicious vegan food as well. So I, I kind of go back and forth between uh, following his, uh, you know, very plant-based, very nutrition-oriented um, uh, diet plan, and also, um, you know, finding times where I can indulge. So Um, Jasmine and I also talk about the veganism movement as a whole, because I just think it's so great to talk to someone who also gets how important it is to embrace everybody who's on the vegan spectrum. Like, I think sometimes vegans have this reputation um, of being a little judgmental, like, you know, like, they're like the vegan police, like, you know, you can't eat that, that's not vegan, or, you know, I wouldn't eat that because, you know, I'm better than that, or I don't know, there's all kinds of different voices. I definitely have heard them in on my own, just, you know, I'll put a recipe up and somebody won't like a particular ingredient or whatever. Um, I just feel like that kind of veganism is not really very attractive. It certainly would turn me off if I wasn't already on the bandwagon. So um, I like Jasmine's approach. It's really about, um, you know, even if you're a partial vegan, even if you're like, you know, just trying vegan one meal a week or one day a week or your uh, VB6, which is vegan before six or whatever, if you are on the vegan spectrum, it is something to celebrate and something to uh, feel proud about. So I love her approach on that. It was very helpful. Also, I really like Jasmine's approach to authenticity. It's, of course, a favorite subject of mine. I think I've been on this journey of trying to really understand authenticity for myself. And I really liked Jasmine's approach to it because she talks about how for her authenticity is something that she's continually discovering about herself and that she really hopes that she won't quite figure it out until maybe about 10 minutes before she dies, which I think is really, you know, a fun approach to it. I think for me, I like one to think like I'm going to open up a curtain and authenticity, uh, the authentic me is going to be there and and then I'm going to finally get it. (laughs) And then I'll be that way forever. And I love this idea that, you know, authenticity is a constant evolving. And to me, then that means the big trick is really knowing yourself. And that, of course, means spending time, um, I don't know, in self-discovery. Maybe that's uh, journaling. Um, Meditation certainly has been a big approach for me. So anyway, all of that stuff, I think, is uh, just a great discussion. And I'm really happy to share with you this interview with Jasmine. And in fact, why don't we just get straight to it? Here's today's feature interview with Jasmine Singer. Hey everyone, I'm happy to have Jasmine Singer, author of the book, Always Too Much and Never Enough. She's on the show today. Jasmine, welcome to the Namely Marley podcast. 
I'm really excited to be here. Thank you so much for having me. Well, thank you for being here, Jasmine. I am really excited to talk with you about your book. But first, I thought it might be helpful if you could just give a little introduction about yourself, you know, kind of like, what caused you to write a memoir at this point? Oh, sure. Well, I, I live in New York City, and I run Our Hen House, which is a nonprofit that works to change the world for animals. And we have the Our Hen House podcast. And we're in our seventh year now. We have the Teaching Jasmine How to Cook Vegan podcast and the Animal Law podcast. Oh, man, you're a podcasting queen. Yeah, we have a lot of fun with it. And so the nature of my work has always been about mainstreaming the movement to end the exploitation of animals. And the book came about after an article that I wrote mind body green on how losing 100 pounds made me realize all of the ways I had been treated differently before I lost the weight. That article went viral. It got like 100,000 Facebook shares in 24 hours. And I then got approached by a publisher. So it was a unfolding of events that ultimately led to the memoir. But it came from a career as an activist and a lifetime of food addiction and having a negative relationship with eating. Wow. So I would love to get into this about that article, but I thought we could go back a little bit really about your memoir. I mean, I loved your book, first of all, and I really resonated with it a lot because, you know, I think those issues with food, I mean, the people that have those issues with food early on, I think there must be some commonalities in the things that we go through. But you know, you talk about, you know, basically issues with food starting from childhood. Yes, I grew up in the sort of neon fluorescent 1980s. And I always say that I I don't even think we owned dishes then because (laughs) all we ate were those little Weight Watchers cardboard (sighs) meals. And when I say cardboard, I mean the container, but also kind of the food itself (laughs) might have been nutritionally equivalent to cardboard. So I asked my brother recently, did we actually have dishes? And he's like, yeah, I think we had a few, but they they were in some faraway cabinet because my mother was always trying really hard to lose those last few pounds. She was always very thin, trying to go from 122 pounds to 120. And I was... I was her chubby kid who was trailing behind her at Weight Watchers meetings, playing Tetris and and trying to forget about the fact that all day long I had been bullied for being fat and different. And then at night I would go to these meetings with my mom. And so, the, you know, it was it was a situation where food had been my best friend mm. and and I wasn't going to give that up anytime soon. It wasn't until decades later that I realized that I was actually being uh, put right in the center of an industry that was reliant on my willful ignorance to continue to consume these foods. And of course, it would never feel like enough. Yeah. Doesn't it suck growing up, you know, being the chubby one? Like I I was, my siblings were all thin and I was the chubby one and uh, drove me crazy. Like constant conversations about, you know, how it is that I could lose some weight. <laughs> Yeah, well, I mean, you could have stopped that sentence with doesn't it suck growing up and just ended it there. (laughs) It's difficult. It's like you're, you know, you and I were talking about this before you hit record. And no matter what, you're going to, your parents are going to accidentally screw you up. And no matter what, it's going to be hard. Yeah, I mean, I guess in some ways, if you think about it, if you don't go through some hardship, you're probably not a very interesting adult. (laughs) Yeah, I think that's the silver lining that that a lot of us like today when we've gone through some crap in our life. Yeah. So I love this quote in your book. You said, food was my guru, my lover, my sage. It seduced and defined me. And ultimately, it deceived me. Can you talk about some of the ways that food uh, seemed like a confident and then at the end, it deceived you? Yeah, well, it goes a little bit to what I just started saying about how it was my friend at the end of days of being bullied by kids. It was always there for me consistently when I wasn't getting any of that consistent love from anywhere else in my life. My, My home life was... It had, I mean, I was loved. My mother and my grandmother certainly loved me, but I was also a kid in a very broken family with lots of marriages and divorces, and, and this this kind of inconsistency was my normal. And then I switched schools, and that was also really jarring. In and of itself, I think that isn't unique. A lot of kids are the new kid at some point, but mm-hmm. based 
put on top of everything else, I was just confused. And it was always the Oreos that were there at the end of the day. (laughs) But the way it betrayed me was that, as I I mentioned, these foods, they are meant to be alluring and, Mm. and, and they're meant to make you sort of feel as though it's never enough because they are made with precisely the right amount of fat to sweet to salty and exactly the right texture of smushy to go down your gullet at precisely the right speed and hit that part of your brain that will always make you want to go for more 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 so that was part of how it deceived me but then the big deception was learning about the way that animals are treated behind closed doors yeah, that's so true. I I think it's interesting that you say that because as you were talking about our gullets, I was actually envisioning like the goose with the, you know, uh, what is that? I can't even think of the name of the, the dish. Are you talking about foie gras production? Yes, foie gras, yeah. yes. Yeah. You know, like they they have this chemical for this formula of stuff they put down their throat to create that. And in some ways, we're kind of like that as well. <laughs> oh, totally. That's the perfect image for this. Exactly. I mean, it's exactly right. And they're, and in, in the case of foie gras production, which is egregiously cruel, it's literally they're giving them what the English translation is fatty liver disease. So they're oh trying to fatten up their liver. So it is actually a perfect analogy. Wow, that is so interesting. And then also, I feel like, uh, I don't know if everybody realizes this, but there are scientists that work for these food corporations that understand what attracts us the most to food. And then like you say, they're creating, uh, they're creating things like Oreos or whatever that perfectly fit what, what it is that we crave and want, whether we need it or not. Exactly. I mean, it's one big manipulation machine. And that was the first way that I was betrayed. But then again, you know, like I just mentioned, we are given most of us, the vast majority of us are hand in meat and milk and eggs from a very early age from the time we're babies. And we're just told to accept that as normal, probably because most of our parents accepted that as normal. I mean, obviously, they mean well. And so when I when I put two and two together in my 20s, I realized, oh, another deception. And as I started to pick apart the ways I was being betrayed by the food industry, that's when I realized all of the ways I had also been betraying myself. Right, exactly. You know, it's so interesting that you say that about our parents, because my mom constantly talks about the fact that she grew up vegetarian, basically, because they couldn't afford to eat meat. So they always ate beans and they always ate rice or things like that. Um, and it's just like in her later years that she started eating meat more frequently. And I, she still doesn't eat a lot of meat. But when I went vegetarian, it was a big question like, oh, are you not getting your protein? Are you, you know, why aren't you eating enough milk? You're not, you know, you're going to break your bones or whatever. It's just like this kind of process, thought process is so rampant in our society. Yeah, absolutely. It's, but I think, you know, I don't know how old you are, but it's different now than it's ever been. There's a lot more information available. Yes. And, and even the way that, that bullied kids like me are being treated in schools is, I, I hope, better than just ignoring it, which is, what, which is what my administration did, what my teachers did, and what I was told to do. When in, in retrospect, that was probably the worst possible advice I could have been given, except that was what they thought to do with kids like me. Yeah, except that you live in New York and I live in Kansas City, which is like the heart of the Midwest. So <laughs> we're still a little bit behind, I think, on some of that. <laughs> Catching up. I but. was just, my brother lives in Kansas City and really? I was just out there doing, yeah, I was just, and my niece, so who's, you know, growing up in Kansas City and my sister-in-law grew up there and I was just out there doing a speaking engagement and there were so many vegan options. I know. I know. It was, I, I loved it. I mean, I, I was, I, I've traveled a lot in, since starting our hen house and a lot has been in the middle of the country. And I mean, of course, I'm only in places for a few days at a time and I'm yep. sure it's different than being enmeshed in the culture, but things are changing everywhere. It's, yep. it's kind of like when people say, oh, you're vegan, you live in New York, I can see how that would be easier. And I'm like, no, the best vegan food I have had has been Pocan, Washington or in, you know, Kansas City or in just random places in the middle of the country. So it's not specific to New York or LA. I want to clarify too, I realize that there are a lot more vegetarian and vegan options in Kansas City than there have been in the past, but there's still kind of a a cultural mindset. You know, we're we're in the heart of beef country here. So, you know, nine point nine 
times out of 10, when I talk to people about veganism, I am looked at as kind of a freak. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like yeah. people, if I were to go to my, uh, like the office I used to work at and I would put cookies out and I would call them vegan, people will look at them like, you know, what do you have? Like alien parts in them or what is going on here? You know, I, I, I recently said to a friend of mine, you know, I grew up in New Jersey and so I, I, I have bowling in my blood. Like we always used to go bowling. And my friend was like, Jasmine, that's not New York. That's not New Jersey upbringing. That's just like suburban upbringing. It's yes, like everyone true. who grew up in the suburbs. So I guess I'm challenging what you're saying that, oh, you live in Kansas City and therefore you're looked at with two heads when you say you have vegan cookies with you. I kind of think in a lot of ways that's just the status quo wherever you are but at the same token the fact that you're recognizing that things are shifting there is also emblematic of how they're shifting everywhere so that's right. really positive i think so too i agree speaking of things changing i just have to ask you about something that was in your book that just caught my attention in the weirdest way you talk about drinking celery soda what is that well, that was mainly what my grandma had it was like a old person thing and the funny thing is it was like an old person thing in the 80s when I was growing up and she would bring a, a pack of it's, it's basically like, like celery flavored soda it's one step up from from celery flavored seltzer because it's actually soda I mean it has calories in it as opposed to seltzer okay and and but then she just kept drinking it my whole life until you know until like uh, the very end of her life which was just a few years ago, she still was drinking celery soda. It's pretty funny. It was called Celery, C-E-L-R-A-Y, Celery. <laughs> I'd never even heard of that. Was it good? Probably not. Oh, I don't, yeah. I, I just, it's more of like a kitschy thing, you yes. know, like, but I, she liked it. <laughs> <laughs> so um, I'm just curious about the perspective of your book. Was it, is it really about your transition to veganism? Or do you feel like there's also a very strong message in there for people who have created probably an unhealthy attachment f with food and ways to recover from that? Well, that's a great question, and it's definitely not a book about my transition to veganism. The f it's a memoir, so the fact that I am a vegan means that that plays a, a strong role in it, and it's an undercurrent throughout the book, but that's not the theme. The theme is really about how I went from being a bullied fat kid to an activist and ultimately dealt with my food addiction and my complicated negative relationship with eating by way of veganism and animal rights activism. And, and it just so happens that that is embedded into my story. But my book is not a how-to book. It's not how to go vegan. It's not how to lose weight. It is about finding peace within your body. And for me, that, re that resulted in uh, losing nearly 100 pounds. But I'm certainly not advocating for the next person to necessarily lose weight. I am advocating that people hopefully find a more authentic version of themselves if that's what they want to do and find peace within themselves. Ah, oh, that's great. And I imagine that, you know, part of that was that, you know, you have to really when I think when you have an unhealthy, um, I don't know, attachment to food, that really trying to get to the core of it and understanding that is what really helps you get past that. And it sounds like that's probably what you did, you know, and, and like you say, it was like your course to veganism that helped that happen, helped you really get at the core of it. There were so many ingredients, so to speak, that led to that. I mean, a big part, as you were asking that question, I was thinking about how when I got out of college, I became an actor educator for an AIDS awareness theater company and how that was an important part of my story because that made me an activist. And mm. that was the first time I looked at how I looked on a conscious level, even though on some level I was always looking at it, how easy it is for us to cast certain individuals aside and decide they're less than and celebrate or accept other ones. That, of course, is something that really played an important role in my own personal journey since I had been such a bullied kid and then adult. And then later when I lost nearly 100 pounds and jumped the fence to what the world decided was acceptable, only then did I realize the ways, the magnitude of the, uh, uh, of the oppression, really, that I had been undergoing as someone who did not fit in. So that extends to food in a lot of ways, since it was food that I was mindlessly consuming throughout this, this whole period. And it was food that was keeping me in a lot of ways from looking at my own actual authenticity. Not the 
food itself, but the monomaniacal nature with which I consumed it. <laughs> yes, exactly. And yours, I, I heard, I love this topic of authenticity. And I heard you just talk about um, authenticity as, as it relates to uh, your approach to food. Can you talk about that? Yeah, absolutely. I, you know, this was an unfolding of events, and it still is. It's not as though I now, in my late 30s, have reached authenticity. It's something <laughs> that I'm constantly, I hope that I am trying to reach for until the day I die. Maybe like 10 minutes before I die, it would be really <laughs> nice to be like, all right, I got it, you know, got and then it. I could die. But I don't want it to ever be like uh, a a pathway to complacency because I think that complacency is the most dangerous possible thing we could we could ever embrace. Yeah. Um, but for me, uh, authenticity it started when I when I was a college student, nineteen, and I went vegetarian, and it was ironic because at the time I did it really because I was seeking an identity, any kind of identity, and I yeah. thought vegetarian suited my persona in a lot of ways. Uh, you know, I wore mm-hmm. all black. I was. I smoked clove cigarettes. I was like a theater student. I thought I was way cooler than I am. And so I thought, oh, I'll be a vegetarian. But I also thought that meat was icky. And that was a truth. That was the beginning of a truth that only then did I start to put together with who I actually was. And then many years later, I went vegan. It was another unfolding of that. And then I but I, I simply replaced a lifelong of poor eating habits with the vegan version of them. So it wasn't until years after that that I, I got a lot closer to discovering my own authenticity once I got rid of my food addiction. That's so great. And and I think that's such an important thing that you just pointed out. And that is, I think sometimes people go towards a vegan diet because they think it is the, the mecca of healthy. But in reality, it's very possible, or, you know, very likely that you, if, you know, without planning, you can be vegan and be completely unhealthy. I well, I tend to think that it it, it can be the optimally healthy way of yeah. eating. It's just food is a deeply personal political issue. Yeah. And what I did, was I focused entirely on the political, which is another irony because I think the vast majority of people focus entirely on the personal and leave the political totally off the plate. It wasn't until I started to bridge together the personal and the political that I realized that self-care was a very important piece of my longevity as an activist and my authenticity as a person who wanted to be present in this world to the people I love and to myself, as well as to the animals who I was trying to save. I couldn't, as it turns out, I couldn't effectively advocate for anybody unless I was also advocating for myself. But going back to your question or your point, I think that it, it, uh, I would argue that a junk food vegan diet is still a lot healthier than a a meat-based diet, you know, because you're, you're taking away a lot of the crap just by going vegan. It's just, it wasn't the food itself for me because I still eat a lot of that food sometimes, Yes, but it was, it was the attitude and the energy and the unconsciousness that I was bringing to it and the negativity swirling around in my head about my own body. That was what needed to change. Oh, that's huge. And that unconsciousness part is huge as well, because I, uh, I actually have found myself at times just, you know, eating, like I'm thinking as I'm eating, like, in other words, like thinking through a problem that I'm trying to work on or whatever. It's like food becomes that, like you say, it's that friend that helps you figure things out. And it's like solving that, I think that helps you eat for what your body needs, not eat for the, I don't know, re- pleasure of it. Yeah, I agree, though. I would say that it is okay to use food to, like, help you work through a problem. It's okay to use food to comfort you at the end of a long day. If that's all it is, that's where, in my experience anyway, that's where the issue began. I got you. Okay, very good. So can you talk a little bit about the way that you lost the 100 pounds? Because I... I know I saw that you did the kind of fasting back and forth and, and switching, you know, between months about how many days that you did the juice fast. And I'm just curious if you could talk about that. Yeah, absolutely. So when I was 30, I was told I was on my way to heart disease. I, I was I was obese and I was just constantly in pain. Mm. I, I felt like crap all the time, but I was I had a very fulfilling career as an animal rights activist and I and I was in a lot of denial about my health and and so I uh, I ignored it until I absolutely couldn't anymore and that was when the 
documentary fat sick and nearly dead really fell on my lap and uh kind of literally someone handed a press an advanced press copy of it to me and so that plus the diagnosis I was just given at my doctor's were the two things that led to this moment where I decided to try a 10-day juice fast. I started it on September 1st, 2010, and I went for 10 days and I documented the whole thing in a video log, which was great for me because when I was writing the book, I went back to those 10 days and I was able to really get into my mindset about what I was going through both physically and emotionally. And I... I lost a lot of weight, but beyond that, it was the first time in my life that not only was I focusing on vegetables, but I was taking a break from the, the mindless consumption of foods like Oreos and processed junk foods that I w- would eat just constantly before I did that first juice fast. So I, I had taken a break from, from that. And it was the first time I was able to look at the behavior. And I realized I didn't need it anymore because I was becoming a stronger version of myself. And I was also giving my body the nourishment that it had been craving. So after I, I was done with the 10-day juice fast, I decided to do a three-day one the following month and a 10-day one the following month. So as you just mentioned, I alternated every month, 10 days, one month, three the next, then 10 and three for three years, two of which it took me, two of those years to lose the weight, nearly 100 pounds. But in between, I consumed a diet rich in whole foods. So I was large. Largely influenced by Dr. Furman's Eat to Live program, yes. which is very similar to T. Colin Campbell's, and it's all based in a lot of the a lot of the information coming out these days about eating as unprocessed as as you possibly can. And so that was the basic gist. Was that hard on your system to make such a big change? Like adding a lot of vegetables adds a lot of fiber, can really mess up your stomach. Um, I would say that it it was my when you when you just asked that. My initial impulse was to say, no, it wasn't hard, but I think that juice fasting now is easier. So yeah. I guess in a way, you know, I had a lot more stuff to, I'm going to use the word detox, though I know that there's probably a lot of buzz about that word and yeah. some people are like, there's no such thing and whatever. So I'm using it to make a point. In my experience, I had a lot more to detox, not only physically, but more so emotionally and energetically because that was the energy that I was shedding as I was shedding the weight was mm. was the impulse to just go to the food in the first place. And a lot of demons show up when you get rid of your addictive behavior. And the only way to get through it is to deal with those demons head on. Oh, and the juice just allows you that opportunity because you, you have to deal with it at that point. Well, for me, it did. And, you know, I say in my book, I don't think anyone, that everyone needs to juice fast. I, it really worked for me. And I do, I mean, I, it's very different than veganism, which I do consider to be, you know, a moral imperative once mm-hmm. you learn about the way animals are treated behind closed doors. But juicing to me is a very personal choice. Unlike, unlike, uh, the decision to not go vegan, which is the opposite of living and let live because you're actually actively contributing to the suffering of animals behind closed doors. Right. So for me, juicing worked like really, really well. And, and, and it, I needed to have it on my calendar. I needed to always have the next juicing dates scheduled way ahead of time, like six months in advance. I had it plotted out because I live a very busy life. And if I didn't have it already written, then there's no way I would have done it. Yeah. So let's talk about that Mind Body Green article then, because then after you lost the weight, you felt like you were treated differently. Yeah. You know, I expected that I would change my view of myself, but I didn't really anticipate how enthusiastically the world would change their view of me. And that was, it, it was something that I was in denial about for a while because I thought, oh, surely I'm just imagining this. Oh, oh, surely it's just because I have more self-confidence now. But it was every day. It was just little things. So there's one part of my book, for example, and I, I actually read this excerpt. I'm on a book tour right now, and this is one of the excerpts I will always read. I'll switch out all the other excerpts, but I'll always read this one because it points so specifically to what happened, which is that I, it's a little tiny moment, but I was at the mailboxes of my building 
Mm-hmm. And my neighbor, who had ignored me for the five years that I lived there, yeah. same with everyone else in the building, which, you know, it's a kind of a New York thing. You tend yeah. to just sort of stay in your own little bubble. He finally just became the friendliest fella to me. And he just asked me how much weight I lost and told me how great I looked. And, you know, if it was that and just that, then it might have just been that he had some kind of lobotomy or <laughs> or he had a change a change in perspective. But men started holding doors for me and like women would compliment my blazers and and I I started to realize that I was being treated much differently than I ever had been before. And it left me with a little bit of a chip on my shoulder for a while. And it left me skeptical about the world until I was able to contextualize it into my activism and just use it to fuel the work I do to speak up for those who are, for whatever reason, less lucky than we are or arbitrarily oppressed, like animals, like people in the LGBT world, like anyone who is in a marginalized community, insert the blank. It's all, to me, a different spoke on the same wheel. And that experience just emboldened me to be louder. Wow, that's great. So rather than let that be something, I mean, it's easy to feel kind of cynical about that. And that cynicism can get you back into that rut, I guess, and use it as something to empower yourself is even better. Yeah. And that doesn't mean I don't have my moments. I certainly have yeah. my moments. I mean, I, I just like you, I think that we all have our moments when, when you've gone through anything, something will trigger us, which is human after all. Uh, but, but for the most part, I think I try to contextualize it into uh, just being a better version of myself because at the end of the day, cynicism is only going to hurt me. That's true. And also, I mean, what is the, you know, what, what about this point that, you know, your energy changed, you know, you were, you were actually changing your attitude towards food. I mean, there's a lot of things that were going on. I, I, although I, I mean, I know that, you know, physical appearance was a part of that as well. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's a really good point. Though everything I'm describing is holistic. It's a yes. holistic view. It's, it's changed. Yeah, you're right. I mean, you hit the nail on the head. I'm just, I'm just repeating what you just said. It's, it's changing your view of yourself. It's changing your view of, of your, of what you're consuming and the energy you're putting into your body, the energy you're putting out of your body. Yeah. And it's a complicated process. It's a process that involves a lot of heartache, but it's ultimately one that I think can liberate us from, hiding behind rows of Oreos or toxic people (laughs) or other substances that might in another moment in our life be always too much. If we can get beyond that and realize that we are just enough, then we can actually have the possibility of thriving. Yes. And in fact, uh, even beyond thriving, I, I totally agree with you. And in fact, I am so proud of myself in the fact that today I cohabitate with Oreos and I don't eat an entire row at a time. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yes, I'm able to have Oreos. Thing. Yes. <laughs> I agree. That's, yeah. that's cool. That's See, I think you. that's really, really great. And how wonderful is it that they're vegan, by the way? I know. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, but I think that's a really good point because when, you know, I almost had to be, I almost had to abstain from these foods entirely at the beginning of this process and I started, it's not as though I consciously started to say, okay, well now's the day I'm going to do it again, but like, I, I don't have a negative mentality about eating anymore and so that's not the issue. Again, that's not to say I don't have other places that sometimes feel as though they're always too much and never enough. Other pieces where I realize I have maybe a bit of a toxic relationship with something, but it's not food. Yes, that's kind of how I feel as well. And and so sometimes I'm going to make an Oreo cheesecake and I'm going to have some of that, but I don't have it all anymore. And that feels so good. Exactly. And it's good advocacy. I mean, Marianne likes to say that the single best, most effective way to to advocate for animals is to create delicious vegan food. And we have to kind of find the balance between showing people how accessible and delicious it is while also taking care of our nourishment and our needs. You know, I'm, as I mentioned, I'm on tour right now and I go to all of these cities and there's all of these food options everywhere. And the wonderful people who are hosting me are like, you have to go to this place and have the vegan Big Mac. You have to go to that place and have the deep fried this with the deep fried that. And at the beginning, of my tour I kind of was because I was like well I'm in the city of where of insert the blank I've got to try it but I started to realize I didn't feel good it's yeah. because it wasn't what I needed and so it was I was in Phoenix and the people I was staying with were they were like what do you need what do you want to eat and I was like I want a green smoothie and then later I want a macro plate and they were like done 
and done. And I said, and I want to go on a run and I want to sit in your backyard in the sun. And so I did all of those things that day and everything changed in one day. Everything wow. changed. Wow. So it's, it's so easy to just push away our most basic human needs. Yeah. And all you had to do was ask for it and it was there. It was there for you. I had to actually just recognize to myself that I needed it. I, I mean, it was, yes. it was, it, she, the person I was staying with asked me what I wanted, but I probably should have realized it before she did. And we have to prioritize ourselves. It's, I'm not going to get all cliche and go into the oxygen mask on our face first thing, but there you go. <laughs> I just did. I mean, that's what we have to do. We, we're yeah. not going to be able to be who we want to be. We're not going to be able to show up for others or ourselves if we're not taking care of these very basic needs first. And, you know, I'm at a point in my life where there is a lot of a lot going on and the only way I will get through it is through self-care and also realizing that there is a greater purpose to all of this that is so much beyond just me that was that was what was the big thing with the authenticity of what I was consuming it was beyond just my body it was about it was about extending my worldview to my consumption habits hmm. That's so powerful. And I, I just wanted to go back for a second to what you said, because it's something I struggle with a lot since I have a blog and I do recipes. Um, you know, this whole concept of, you know, I feel guilty sometimes when I'm throwing out there a vegan version of Big Macs or vegan Oreos. Um, I mean, I, it is easy to think that I should just be doing only healthy foods. But I agree with you, we do so much more when we let everybody know well, let everybody in the vegan door, you know, if, if some people are not going to be eating macrobiotic bowls and, you know, maybe they don't want to do that, but they can create a vegan Big Mac, I think that opens the door to them. I totally agree. It's a transition food in a lot yes, of ways. And, and the other thing is you have to keep in mind that you're not force feeding these foods down their throat, you know? Right. Yes. Like the, a lot of the people who are reading your blog and reading your recipes are like you and have Oreos downstairs in the cupboard that they don't need to eat the entire package of in order to feel like they're a whole person. <laughs> so you're, you, you don't know. I would let go of the guilt about that and realize that you're offering, you're offering something tremendous to animals ultimately. Right. And our environment as well, right? Of course, yeah. Yes, because I, I, I kind of feel like there's different motivations for why people would become vegan. And some people may just say, I want to help the environment. I don't necessarily uh, really care about my, it's not about my health. It's really more about I want to be this good citizen of the planet. And therefore, uh, I want to eat more vegan meals. And so I, I feel like ha letting them have options is important. Totally. We got to get them in the door. That's you just said that. Get them yeah, in the door. and I also heard. Um, I don't know if you watched the episode of the Daily Show when John Stewart was on, and he was interviewing Gene Barr with with a farm sanctuary, and and actually these words came out of John Stewart's mouth. He said, "Veganism will become mainstream when when it becomes convenient." And I wanted to like get a cowbell and ring it and go, "It's already convenient," you know. <laughs> <laughs> There's yeah. a lot of great products out there that people can use to So um, maybe that maybe maybe the amended version of that statement should be veganism will become mainstream when people realize it's convenient. Ah, that's it. That is oh, that's a perfect statement. Yes. Yeah, but more and more people are realizing it and, and things are definitely shifting. And what we need to do is get to a tipping point, which is not necessarily everybody, which is, of course, what I want. I want everyone. I want a vegan world. <laughs> yeah. And I will probably stop at nothing to get one. But I but the thing that I've noticed in being in my seventh year of, of running our henhouse and before that, I was the campaigns manager for Farm Sanctuary. But what I've realized in my activist career is I'm sorry, there's a helicopter going over my head. I, don't know I can't even hear it. hear it. Oh, okay, good. What I've realized in my activist career is that the thing that is getting us closer to a tipping point isn't necessarily people going vegan, but it's people going more and more and more and more vegan or people going vegan five days a week. I mean, that's yes. what I'm seeing. And I, of course, will not, will not stop until there's more... They're, they're vegan, but it, it gives me hope. And in a world where we have such little power over so many things, I'm going to take the small victories when I can. Absolutely. So if somebody does the VB6 program where they're, you know, vegan at, uh, after six every day or whatever, I agree. I call that a, a victory for the vegans at that point. 
Yeah, I'll call it a small victory. But yeah, of course, I want to see it as a positive thing. I mean, we were just talking about Kansas City. And after I went vegan, my entire family went vegan. Yeah, except my brother who lives in Kansas City. But these days, and I just mentioned I was just visiting, I'll open the refrigerator. And it's not because I'm visiting, but they will, it will be full of vegan food. And, and, you know, not, not in addition to, but instead of like just mayo, instead of the dairy based mayonnaise. And, and it's, it's exciting because I'm not even even sure it's it's I don't even think they realize how vegan they are so uh, you know if my if my naysayer uh combative meat eating brother from Kansas can be embracing veganism then anybody can <laughs> well and I think accessibility is part of that then right because you can go to Target and buy just mayo it's right there Mm -hmm. Exactly. And and I also find there's a lot of different reasons people are going vegan as well. For example, did you know you can get bit by a tick that can leave you allergic to animal products? No, I didn't know that. Yes, I have a friend who said, by the way, I'm going to your site now for recipes because I've been bitten by a tick and that causes this disease. And it's it's out there. So there's a lot of different you can have an allergy uh, to dairy or there's lots of things, reasons why people might start navigating towards a vegan diet. And, And I'm so glad that these products products are out there for people. Yeah. And in addition to the specialty items, of course, as you know, and you alluded to the fact that maybe you have your parents might have been embracing this as well. Beyond just the specialty items, the very basics of of beans and and dried dried grains and nuts and seeds and fruits and vegetables. These are these are accessible anywhere, not just at Whole Foods. Oh, that's so true. Every grocery store, every, you know, you know, Walmart, everywhere you go. In fact, sometimes I swear to you, I've thought about writing a book called The Walmart Vegan, because there are so many things at Walmart that you could turn into an easy vegan meal. There is a vegan section of every single grocery store. It's called produce. (laughs) (laughs) I love that. That's really good. But yeah, bagged beans and bagged rice, that's all really cheap. And, you know, it's really not that hard to put together once you, you know, kind of get the knack of how to prepare it, too. Yeah, well, and it's 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 healthy. It's oftentimes healthier than the more specialty items, which I also have in my fridge sometimes. But, you know, I'm on a budget, too. And so I appreciate the bulk section like like anybody else on a budget is. Exactly. Okay, so if you were talking to somebody today that was thinking about transitioning to a vegan diet, what advice would you have for them? Well, I would first say that there is a vegan version of every single kind of animal product out there. And so, which is the really exciting part of everything we're talking about. And I would also encourage anybody who's flirting with veganism to find community. For me, the community was the most important part of my vegan journey. I I think I would have done it anyway. And I went vegan 13 years ago and it it was, it was different than it is now. There wasn't as much available, but there were still meetups and there were still Mm -hmm. vegan people hanging out here and there. And even if you're in a place where there's not, I have spoken at so many events on this book tour where the they'll host a vegan potluck once a month to a community of hundreds of people who aren't vegan, but they're vegan curious and they're vegan friendly. So even finding people like that, our hen house is, is for a lot of people, a strong community. So listen to our hen house. If you're, if you're vegan curious, the teaching Jasmine how to cook vegan podcast specifically is good because it's, it's really geared toward anyone who might just want to learn about some new food. And I'm not a great cook at all. So that's kind of the point of the podcast. I'm learning how to cook and it's Jasmine friendly recipes, meaning if I could do it, anybody can. So (laughs) I I would say start, you know, start there with community and with just the good old fashioned Google machine and looking for a recipe, looking at your recipes and, and, and also learning about the reasons why people are vegan. Cause it's not just about eating vegan cheesecake. It's also about voting with your dollars and standing up for what you believe in and, and learning how to live consistently with your ethical beliefs. Yes. And when you live in that kind of integrity, uh, it's very powerful place to be. It's definitely an important step for for a lot of us, I think, in in that deeper level of authenticity. So you're on your book tour right now. Are is any new books coming up on the horizon or what's what's going on for you in the next year? Yeah, it's well, I'm on a book tour. So it is May now and the book came out in February. So uh, that's just been a few months. And I've been on a very aggressive 
book tour and I will be for the rest of the year. Um, my hope is, you know, my background is in theater and my hope is to do a one woman show based on my book next year. And I do have some book projects that I'm sort of flirting with and jotting more and more ideas down every day, talking a little bit with my agent about what might be uh what people might want to read because it's always a mixture of like how to get your message into something that is sellable so uh you know i'm playing with some ideas such as the diy media makers guide to changing the world and <sighs> general nonfiction like that which i hope has a broad appeal but because i will always bring personal narrative to anything i do it will encompass animal rights and veganism and animal rights activism. So that is hopefully going to just be the through line of everything I write for the rest of my career. I love it. Okay, so I've just got a couple of fun, quick questions here at the end of the interview. What's one food item you can't live without? Oh, gosh. Oh, chickpeas, because I, I not only I eat them in every capacity you can, I eat them just as chickpeas, I eat them uh, as, as I'll make brownies with them. Me too, uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. I, I think that they are a dynamite food and, and I will always have them on hand. And in, if I was a better person, I would make them from the dried version, but I usually just have some cans, just the Goya chickpeas in my, in my cabinet in case I just want to throw together a quick and easy meal. And now you can even use the chickpea brine yes. as well. <laughs> I know. But let's not even go into that because I just want to have a moment of silence for all of the chickpea water that I have thrown away throughout my life. <laughs> I know. It's terrible, isn't it? <laughs> it's tra It's nothing short of tragic. Yes. All that time we thought it was wasted stuff and it's really good. <laughs> and, and what a life metaphor that is. Ah, true. Oh, my God. That's so true how often we think something is just worthless and, and come to find out it has lots of value. Right. Okay, exactly. do you have a favorite workout? I I love to tap dance. <laughs> That's so cool. I, you know, I was going to say, I, the only two things I do really that are physical are running and tap dancing, but, uh, and I, I really do enjoy running. I just went on a long run today and, and it was, it was nice and it was cathartic and I cried a little and I listened to music and I laughed and then I felt good about myself when I get back, but there's nothing more satisfying than a shuffle ball change. A shuffle ball change. <laughs> That's so cool. I love that. I know my daughter took tap dance lessons and I love to watch her tap dance. And uh, I always thought I want to do that. So that's you should do it. Really? You should totally do. I mean, I did it as a kid too. And then I didn't start it up again until I was in my thirties. And then by the way, just going back to what you just said about watching her do it. Yeah. There is something so fun about watching amateur tap dancers because there's so much passion there yes yes and there's like a, just like a couple of movements and a lot of things come out of it you're like oh yeah wow, this is just a shuffle ball change it's so easy I but know. it's like this tum 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 or i don't know no so. i know my my tap teacher who's like i'm totally she's so amazing her name is barbara duffy and she's a world-renowned tap dancer and she will just like move her foot like an inch and like yeah. 25 sounds will come out of her oh how does that happen i have absolutely no idea i'm looking for the little tape recorder hiding in her sock i have no idea <laughs> <laughs> She's like pushing a button and all this sound I know. happens. Yeah. <laughs> it's 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 brilliant. It's it's tap dancing is you cannot do it and you can't tap dance or watch tap dancing without thinking about anything else. So it just clears your mind of all of the crap and you're focusing on just those noises. And you think do you have to take a class, right? You can't like just watch it online. Well, I mean, you could do that just for fun, but it, I don't think you could learn how to tap dance without taking a class. No. Okay. That might, be, that might be a 2016 project. I might have to take a tap class just you for the fun totally of it. You should totally do it. You should totally, totally do it. You would be surprised. I'm sure that there are, there's more and more adult beginner classes in tap. Cool. I want to do that. I could probably wear her old shoes and everything. There you go. <laughs> okay. So tell me, what inspires you? Oh, <laughs> oh God. I, um, I'm inspired by people who consider themselves lifelong learners. I, I like to think of myself as a lifelong learner, but it, it's easier to recognize in other people. I'm inspired mm. by people who have the ability to go through painful times in their life, understanding that even if they have no idea how they'll get through to the other side, they will get through to the other side. And that doesn't stop them from making the painful decisions that you have to make in order to get through to the other side. So I, I 
you know, I, I try more and more to hang out with, with people like that. And, and to realize that if I'm hanging around someone who is just gossipy and who is bringing negative energy to my world, then that's a reflection of me. And it's also something I probably don't want to be hanging around. Um, so the energy that we bring to one thing in our lives is oftentimes emblematic of the energy we bring to something else. I was just doing a run the other day and I found myself on this major hill. Like I'm not a great runner. I mean, I'm very, very, very amateur. And I was running up this hill and I was like, I, there's no one looking. All I want to do is just either go back down or stop and walk really slowly. But then I thought of that. I thought the energy that I'm bringing to this is the energy I bring to the rest of my life. And I just like, I pushed and pushed and I got to the top of the hill and I kind of wanted to die. But when I got there, I was like, all right, I think that was worth it. So I guess that that's what inspires me is people who, people who show me how, how they get to the top of the hill. Cause I don't know the answers. I'm just trying to figure it out as I go along. Oh, I love that answer. That's great. So how can people find you online? Well, my book is called Always Too Much and Never Enough. And you can find it wherever books are sold. If you like it, I hope that you'll consider leaving a friendly review on Amazon or Barnes & Noble or wherever you want to. And you can go to jasminesinger.com to learn more about my book and my book tour. It's the, my name has no E, so it's J-A-S-M-I-N. S-I-N-G-E-R, jasminesinger.com. And Our Hen House is available at ourhenhouse.org. We also are on iTunes and Stitcher, the Our Hen House podcast, the Teaching Jasmine How to Cook Vegan podcast, and the Animal Law podcast. And on Instagram, I am Jasmine Singer Author and Our Hen House. And on Twitter, I'm Our Hen House and Jasmine underscore Singer and on Facebook, it's just pretty easy. Just look for Jasmine Singer or Our Hen House and you'll find me there. Jasmine, thanks so much for taking the time to talk with me today. I had a great time. Yeah, so did I. I really appreciate it. Thanks for all you're doing. I so appreciate it. Thanks to Jasmine Singer for being my guest on today's episode of the Namely Marley podcast. If you'd like more information about today's show, just head over to the show notes page at namelymarley.com forward slash podcast. I hope you're loving the Namely Marley podcast. If so, there are a couple of ways you can help support the show. You can head over to iTunes or Stitcher and leave a review. You can also share this episode with your friends and family on social media, or you can share about it on your own blog or podcast. All of these are helpful and they really mean a lot. So until next time, may health and happiness come your way today. <laughs>